Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers, with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kirk Damon. Today's episode is sponsored by Mobile Armored Strike Command. Illusion is the ultimate weapon. And welcome into the next episode. We're on episode six, Kirk. We're on episode six. That means we're the last of the prequels. The last of the prequels. So that means episode seven will be a J.J. Abrams-style, highly kinetic reimagining of our first episode. Yeah, but we need to have some heavy breathing from Vader at the end. Yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, so today's topic is uh, cosplay. Well, we should introduce ourselves. I'm your host, Ben Siders, and the, the man you just heard from is Kirk Damon. That's Kirk as in the captain of the Enterprise. And uh, like I said, today's topic is cosplay. We're going to talk about uh, the copyrightability and uh, fan use of costumes derived from or based on other creative works. This topic comes to us from Brendan in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. So thank you, Canada, uh, for tuning in, and thank you for the idea. If you've ever been to any kind of sci-fi, fantasy, or Comic-Con, you know that there are cosplayers there. Uh, They're at BlizzCon. They're at basically any place you find geeks, you will find people in costume. Yeah, and there are all sorts of different costumes. I think the vast majority majority of them are obviously specifically related to whatever the comics the, the con is over so at comic cons you're going to find people dressed up as comic characters you know at blizzcon you're going to find people dressed up as like, characters out of uh, world of warcraft you know the they're usually based on something specifically in the properties that the con is related to yeah and, and some and that's probably the most typical case although we talked about Archon briefly in our last episode uh, i haven't been there in a while but the last time i was there i got bit by somebody dressed by a, a vampire yep i think the other <laughs> thing to keep in mind is that costumes also are not as necessarily defined solely by fantasy and sci-fi universes. You know, you go to a Renaissance fair, you will see people dressed oh, up, yeah. you know, in conjunction with, you know, in medieval or Renaissance costumes. Um, I wear, particularly, I wear a, a 15th century, you know, medieval costume when I go to a Renaissance fair on a regular basis. Um, now, this this topic primarily is going to concern copyright, but there's also an element of trademark to it, and in some cases, maybe right of publicity. Uh, we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit, too. But it seems to me, Kirk, copyright seems to always be at the forefront of what we're talking about here. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I mean, you may have noticed if you've listened to the prior episodes and stuff like that, we definitely had one that was clearly on patent, um, but the vast majority of our episodes have touched, at least in some respects, on copyright, and I think the reason we're really getting into so much copyright, one, because it presents a lot of very legal, interesting legal questions, but two, we're talking about geek culture. And ultimately, geek culture is essentially associated with various creative works um, and people who desire to be associated with them, sort of a tribal nature of humanity that comes down to it. And the copyright is always directed to the specific idea of expressive and creative work. So there's always a creative element in a lot of things that have to do with geek culture. There's something which somebody has created at one end of this. And at the other end, there's then the expression and association with that creativity. Yeah, for sure. So let's uh, let's start with the, the basics. We kind of we've covered this in a number of, of podcasts, but I think it, it bears repeating. Let's let's kind of get into how copyright works to lay this foundation. So the copyright in America, at least, is covered by a law passed by Congress, yep. uh, which we're not going to originally based on the Constitution. Yeah, and it's it's in the Constitution, so that's where Congress gets that that authority. And basically, the Copyright Act Act gives certain exclusive rights to the they call it, they use the word authors because this is the yep. Copyright Act showing its age, but authors of creative work. So if you write a song, you're the author of the song. If you take a photo, you're the author of the photo. Uh, copyright. Uh, rights go to authors, and the copyright rights are, this is often misunderstood, it's not a plagiarism right, although if you plagiarize, you can potentially also infringe a copyright, but plagiarism is the idea of stealing other people's ideas. Copyright is about preventing people from 
copying or distributing or otherwise making use of your own creative expression. Yep, and that's we're going to get at this. And if you listen to the last episode, we we mentioned it at the end. We talked about it a lot this idea expression dichotomy. Yeah, and this is one of the key elements of copyright and things you get into very very importantly. And that's where plagiarism, if you think about it, is oftentimes the copying of an idea. It's the idea that some you know if you're talking about it like a scientific work. You're not giving credit to somebody for promoting, hey, this is what was done. This is what was done before me. This is the theory that's promoted. It's more that you're copying their idea, whereas copyright is entirely prote- directed to the protection of expression, not to idea. And so what, and, are the, what are the basic things you cannot do with somebody else's copyrighted work? You can't make copies of it, obviously. You can't make copies of it. Um, you cannot publicly perform it. So yeah. you can't read somebody's poem in a public performance, for example. You can't publicly display if it's like a piece of art. I can't yeah. copy the art and then display it in public. Um, you can't and, make mechanical reproductions which is a fancy way of saying essentially record it. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, what's the other big one? I'm th- uh, oh, distribute. You can't distribute copies either. Although yep. that, the first sale doctrine can extinguish that, but that's probably not going to be relevant for today's purposes. Yep. Uh, so let's talk about what you're doing when you're making a costume. Uh, most costumes are going to fall into one of three categories for purposes of a, a copyright analysis. So either the costume is so close to the original that it's going to be considered a reproduction, wouldn't you say? Yep. And I think that's what a lot of cosplayers are aiming for. What they're yeah. aiming for is to try to reproduce authenticity, you know, whatever it might be. The the problem I think you bump into a lot of times is if you're talking about something other than essentially a movie, it may not really be that detailed. Um, you know, a movie set, a movie costume, maybe that detailed because it's it's going to show on camera, it's high resolution, you know, imagery, stuff like that. But if you're talking about, you know, certain TV shows, you may actually have more detail in a costume than actually appears on the authentic, you know, costume. And particularly for old films that are filmed in, uh, in low definition, it may be hard, especially if the costume is like a, sort of a background character. Yep. Like I'm thinking the Star Wars cantina scene, how many of those characters are really all that well fleshed out yeah. as far as what they look like. Well, and a lot of them were costumes that, you know, they found somewhere. <laughs> I believe that's why Wolfman appears. That's right. literally just, he found that. They know, edited costume. him out of the, the new version of that. Yeah, so, yeah, so, uh, so, so you, if you make the costume, you've arguably, um, uh, you've made a copy, obviously, and the fact that you haven't just, you know, stamped out another copy using a machine is not relevant. If you've made a copy, you've made a copy. So yep. you've arguably infringed that right. But to me, so if you make a copy, you keep it in your house, so what? Who's ever going to find out, yep. you know, and how are you going to get in trouble? But then you put you it might on. Maybe if you post certain pictures on the internet yeah. of you in the costume, but. Maybe, maybe you're asking for trouble there. But then you put it on and wear it to a con. Are you now displaying the copy publicly without permission? It would seem like that's a public, I mean, most cons are public events, I think you can say in conjunction with it. You've probably also been wearing it in the car. You probably wore it as you walked in, arguably public display. Um, so you're not necessarily in something private in conjunction yeah, with it. Yeah, so they get into the question of what does or does not constitute a public display. And this actually comes up with the Super Bowl sometimes. People who have big enough Super Bowl parties and invite enough people, at some point, you know, you're, you're, you're right to re- re-show the Super Bowl or, or other TV content in, your, yep. in the privacy of your own home. It kind of comes with your subscription to your cable or, 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 you know, yep. or broadcasting over the air. But that doesn't include the right to, to, to re-broadcast it, basically. Yep. Like, like bars have to get a separate license yep. to... to to show that kind of stuff. There, there's actually, and it's, if you haven't done it, it's a, one of the things we'd probably suggest for you guys to do. If you have a DVD at home or anything that's you know recorded content, go and actually read that FBI warning that's right at the beginning, um, or read some of the copyright notices that are at the end. Or like if you have a you know if you're watching a, a football game, something along those lines, they always have this short ad that sort of comments mm-hmm. about the ownership of the content. You might want to actually listen to one of those at one point in time and hear what it talks about, because a lot of times what those are is licenses. They're mm-hmm. actually licensing you to do specific things, so it's licensed to you know be displayed in your home. The issue you then bump into is, well, what's a home? You know, I can take my house and I can convert it into a place of business and call it a bar. And those are regularly done, so to speak. 
if that's not a place of business, is that still displaying it publicly in my home? What exactly do I have here? And I think that's exactly the question you're getting at is where do you bump into these? Because there are separate licensing schemes. You know, can you show a football game in a bar? Of course you can. It's done all the time. There are specific licensing schemes that bars have to meet in Same order to the display music, it. Right? Same with the music, right? You need a special yeah. license from BMI or, or whoever or to, ASCAP or or ASCAP ASCAP to play yep. the music. Companies that's out there, but those are specific to commercial establishments. They can, they're 100% legal if they're abiding by those, those uh, licenses. What about so? So uh, does this imply then that if the con you go to is unpopular enough in the 2010s, that it's not really a public display? That, that can be an interesting question. I think we're, we're actually going to drop just briefly into a patent concept and what is a public display. Which actually, there's some discussions in patent law about what exactly is a public display. And interesting enough, the sort of seminal case in patent law and what is a public display is any display to any person who's not under an obligation not to reveal it further is considered a public display. And the seminal case was actually a, a, a prototype of a kaleidoscope that was left on a coffee table during a, a dinner party, in fact, or a cocktail party. And the interesting thing about it is that was ruled to be a public display, even though they could definitively point out that nobody looked at it. <laughs> so it's one of those things where you look at it and you say, what's a public display? Public display can be very, very easily yeah. you know, met as soon as you get into anybody that's outside yourself. It's more about the nature of the venue and and the, the whether you know the, the public character, like like a mall technically is a shopping mall, is obviously a privately owned yep. land, but it's it's a quasi-public place. And yep. I think a con, basically I think if you're if you're inviting the public to attend, all you got to do is buy a ticket, then yep. I think it's going to be considered a public place. And yep. wearing your costume is a public display. Yep. And there's also been some interesting things having to do with buying tickets. Again, sort of pulling another area of law, there's been a lot of discussion as to whether or not like buying tickets to beer festivals actually infringes liquor tax laws. Oh, that's a good one. Uh, for distribution of homework. Another podcast right there. Um, yeah, um, because of the fact of exactly whether or not um, it's public, what exactly the status of it is, and whether it's for profit. Let's talk about a second category of costumes. Uh, if you make a costume that's similar to and based on the original, but includes enough original material, yep. say, to make it um, sort of an independent creative work of its own. So, it, you know, for example, uh, um, oh, we were talking before the show about there's a, a, a male version yep. of the slave Princess Leia costume. I saw, this, I saw this years ago, and it's one of those, I think it's a great sort of example of somebody who took a concept um, and, and did something completely unique with it. So it's a guy who actually came up and created what would be considered sort of a slave Leia costume, which I think we're all aware of exactly what that is. It's from Return of the Jedi. From if Return you haven't of the seen Jedi, it, go yep. see it. <laughs> If you haven't seen it, you're in trouble listening to this podcast. Uh, but the the key about it was, is it was a reimagining. He just didn't simply dress up uh, as a male in Leia's costume. He reimagined the costume. What would it have been if Leia had been male? What was the concept behind the costume? What was it supposed to do? So his costume, if, and again, I'm, I'm going off memory here, but it had sort of a very gladiatorial feel to it. Um, I remember he had like large shoulder pads. He was definitely bare chested. Mm-hmm. Um and the idea of sort of, you know, accentuating what would it be to be in some sense a male performer in conjunction with this gangster lord. And, and doing something like that, obviously for, for that kind of, uh, of an artistic endeavor to be successful, it has to both, you know, immediately remind the viewer of the Princess Leia costume. Yep. So you know what, what it's referencing. Although the color scheme was obviously very similar. Yeah. So you have, to, you have to understand what you're referencing and you have to also understand what he's done with it that's different. Yep. I think that's probably a pretty clear derivative work. Yeah, and the issue with it is, is that he basically had no particular elements that one could say were in the Leia costume. I mean, obviously, shared some coloration, shared some arguably decorative elements. Maybe more like of an that. inspired by, as opposed to an actual derivative. Inspired work. by is a great word, yeah. Um, so it is, but I think you then get into what is exactly is a derivative work. I mean, a derivative work derives from the original, but it has to be independently copyrightable, yep. which in this case that would be yep. clearly. 
Um, or, or, or would it? Because we're going to get into that in a second, too. Can you even copyright a costume in the first yep. place? Um, let's move on to the third category. You, you could have a costume that's different enough that it's it's not a copy of something that exists, also not derived from the original, but a, a whole new and original t- a take, uh, yep. maybe on the same idea. Maybe this is where the male version of the Princess Leia costume falls in. It's, it's maybe based on the original, um, but uh, it's just the same concept of yep. a, a, you know, a... A gangster slave yep. costume in a sci-fi universe. That's just the idea, yep. and the expressions are different. One could almost argue that his his take on the costume, you know, yes, it's a slave outfit for a you know gangster universe, but arguably the ideal male slave, a slave, would potentially be one of the soldiers out of five hundred. So it's a yeah. similar style costume 300. to a th- three hundred. <laughs> there is a lovely doubling though. the size of the Spartan army almost. <laughs> what was it three thousand later on? But uh, um, yeah, so they yeah, weren't Spartans. They didn't count in three hundred. Let's get that right. Um, they have the. Uh, you know the issue of conjunction with you sort of look at it and say that those are in many respects sort of that that um, you know sort of male presentation costume you know particularly in the movie i think even more so than anything associated with history there's you know this idea of these people being performers you know, that's part of what it is. They were designed to look incredibly athletic. They were designed to look incredibly powerful. That was part of what it was. That falls into what you would expect from somebody who is a slave capture of a gangster lord that wants to show them off. You would mm-hmm. want to say, hey, look, this person is powerful. This person is, you know, a, a physical specimen as to what it was. And I have captured them, and they are now forced to perform for me. Well, we, so there's a, a big exception in copyright that, that may throw a lot of uh, doubt onto whether these are actually real issues or not, and that is the uh, the useful article exception. So, Kirk, why don't you explain what that is real quick? So, basically, there's a recognition that useful articles cannot be subject to copyright. So, the extent that you have something where its, it's design effectively is caused by what its use is, it can't be copyrighted. So, the example is you can't really get a copyright to the shape of a screw. I mean, a screw is dictated by what it's for. Yeah. And, and the term useful, as, as used in the law here, is, is a reference to the term utility, yep. which in turn is kind of an old 18th century term for things that have functional or practical uses. Yep. The, uh, the Constitution refers to copyrights and patents as applying to science for copyrights. And was it the practical arts? Practical arts, I think it is. Yeah, yeah practical arts. So the, the concept of practicality or usefulness or utility is connected to things that are not merely expressive, but that have some sort of practical application yep. beyond being in and that's a, a very good point to talk about this is when we were talking about it is there, there's usually a recognition in IP law of a specific um, sort of component that relates to it, which is that copyright protects the expression, patent protects the utility. Um, this is an important distinction too, yeah. right? Because patents only last for 20 years. If you could copyright the function for... I mean, you could lock that up for, uh, in some cases, a century or more. Yeah, and they also definitely are directed to sort of, they require much more, you know, um, require, you know, in-depth examination process. They're much harder to get, you know, stuff like that. So, but that's a common thing where people usually say is that the two apply differently in terms of IP. Copyrights, expression, patents, utility. So, again, if you talk about a screw, you know, as to what it is, it's utility. If you invent a particularly new method, you know, method for screwing two things together, you potentially can get a patent to that, but you really shouldn't be able to get a copyright. Yeah, so so turning to costumes, what's the function of a costume? The courts have generally held that the cut or design of clothing, what it, what it's shaped like, is not copyrightable because it's inherently functional, yep. the function being to cover the human body. Yep. You have to have armholes in order for your arms to go out. Yeah. You have to have leg holes Because that's what people are shaped like. Yeah, I mean, the, the human body is a relatively you know straightforward shape. I mean, yes, people come in all sorts of different shapes, but we have a same similar general shape across yeah. all humans. 
But this, this leaves interesting questions. So if, if I can't copyright the cut or the design of the clothing, can I copyright anything? And this actually just came up uh, last year in a Supreme Court case where um, a, a cheerleader outfit company, yep. uh, one of their founders left and founded a competing company that basically used the same basic cheerleading designs. Copyright infringement shenanigans ensued, and it got to the Supreme Court yep. with the, the allegedly infringing company arguing, no, it's clothing and it's functional, and the particular designs of the yep. cheerleading outfit are all part of that utility. Yep. And one of the particular elements that it got into is the patterning that's on the clothing. And they particularly got into the idea that for purposes of a cheerleading outfit, it has to identify a team, it has to identify, you know, it's, essentially the cheerleading outfit is designed for a particular purpose, which is to be a yeah. cheerleader and to associate with a particular team, school, whatever you want to say. They argue the expressive it. elements were themselves part of the function yep. of a cheerleading outfit. Exactly. Did the Supreme Court buy it? No. No. <laughs> Um, and and the answer is, is the Supreme Court did sort of recognize, but again, they made, and we've said this before, this very, very clear distinction, idea, expression. Yeah. And um, that there is, you know, sort of uh, some components of the fact that, you know, yes, some of this were functional. There were elements that could not be protected. At the same time, there are elements that can be protected, particularly when you're talking about what is essentially a direct copy. Um, and that's the other element, I think, to get into with copyright. Copyright does require actual copying. So there's always a question of, you know, when you're talking about something like this, could you have come up with the costume on your own? Mm-hmm. So particularly if you're having a particularly simple costume, um, an example of like one of the ones I'm just going to pick on real quick is Han Solo's pants. Yeah. You know, which are effectively tuxedo pants having the stripe running down the side of them. The official red smuggler you know, stripe. Um, yeah. You know, there's there's that type of a structure is common, you know, in, in a number of different fashion designs. That may still be considered something which is, you know, copyrightable in the end, but it may also fall into something which is not really copyrightable because, or even if it's copyrighted, it may not be infringement mm-hmm. because you may get that same pant design from a completely unrelated way and not actually copy it. I think traditionally, we, we the courts have held that things like Halloween costumes are, are generally not copyrightable under this utility argument, but I think this cheerleading case may change that calculus. And if so, um, this actually may make things harder for cosplayers because there may be a more clearly copyrightable aspect of cosplay-like costumes, which beyond the fact that they fit a person, there are some crazy ones, right? I've seen a guy yeah. like in a centaur costume, yeah. you know, which has all these other things added to it. Well, or, the guy who's uh, a transformer. I mean, let's use that. Yeah, as he yeah. turns himself into a robot that turns into a car. Or the ones that dress up as, uh, is it Sylvanas from uh, Warcraft that has like all the the like the like wings and the blades and stuff? There's all these oh, great yeah. characters with crazy you know, fairies and things like that that aren't, you know, obviously aren't things that people need. They're clearly decorative aspects yep. that are added to the costume. You then also bump into, and I think this is the idea where it's like, getting into the concept of like stock characters, one of the things you mentioned is a fairy. There's lots and lots and lots of fairies um, that are out there. All fairies pretty much have wings, mm-hmm. um, you know, and they tend to wear sort of, you know, dresses, more like gossamer type clothing as to what it is. You know, I have a young daughter and, I mean, she's addicted to, you know, fairy books and things along those lines. There are a huge number of different fairies. So one kind of bumps into the idea of, What's the copyrightability in a fairy? There may be copyrightability in one specific fairy, but there's lots of different fairies out there, and how does this play in? That, that's a good segue into our, our next topic, which is a concept I've never been able to pronounce correctly. It's French sans affaire? Sans affaire. Sans affaire. Okay, so this is this is a concept in copyright that holds that certain things are never copyrightable, even though they do argue an expressive element. And those things are the sort of rudimentary, elementary, obligatory stock aspects of whatever yep. your 
expressing. So if I'm going to do a costume of a fairy, it's going to have wings. Yeah. And the fact that it has wings is itself not copyrightable. Now, the particular design of the wings might be, yeah. but fairy wings typically look like butterfly wings or insect wings of some kind. And so the fact that you have wings that look like that, that's not going to provide any kind of copyrightability. Yep. And I think that raises really interesting questions in how you deal with stock characters like Stormtroopers and Star Trek red shirts. Yep. And, and I think the, the red shirt, I think, is actually a particularly good example. The Stormtrooper has very, very particular armor. And we can look at it and say, hey, a Stormtrooper armor is immediately distinctive. There's really nothing like it in the in the real world. At the same time, a red shirt is a guy with black pants and a red shirt. Yeah. You know, yeah, he has a logo on the red shirt, but there's not much different. And that's one of the things you bump into with costuming. I did a lot of theater tech. Uh, theater tech. I actually did mostly light design um, when I was in college and stuff along those lines. But I worked with a lot of people who were costumers. A lot of costumes are actually taking, you know, existing clothing components and putting them together in unique ways. Um, you know, I mean, the local Goodwill used to get rated a lot, you know, for looking for costume components. And particularly if you're talking about a character that isn't necessarily a sci-fi character, we're talking about a character set in today's universe or a character who's designed to look like something that exists today, they're probably just wearing clothing. Um, and do we actually have the possibility of a character getting rights in the appearance of their clothing when what they're simply wearing is just clothing that's almost off the rack? Yeah, the red shirt in particular, other than, I mean, there's some very basic design elements, but the, the Star Trek uniforms are pretty elementary. It's just a yep. military-style uniform. So uh, a perhaps more interesting question, what about going a Spock? <laughs> Again, you're wearing the basic Star Trek uniform, and you're basically going to add elf ears and a bad wig. So is, is that enough to infringe anything? <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's interesting because I think the thing you also get into is you're adding elf ears. Yeah. We just refer to them as elf ears, not Vulcan ears. Um, and wait a minute, pointed ears, where do pointed ears come from? Who really developed the first character to have pointed ears? Who showed it visually, you know, having pointed ears? Are they Spock ears? Are they, you know, elf ears? What exactly are they? And I think we've all encountered that where people have done, and I've encountered cosplayers who've done that, that kind of mush the two things together occasionally. And so it's the am I an elf or am I Spock? Or um, even uh, Captain Kirk's even more interesting one because uh, beyond the command colors and the haircut, uh, you're just going to make liberal use of the Shatner comma. <laughs> so be, beyond that, uh, what is there to distinguish? Somebody, I mean, if someone's dressed as Captain Kirk at a con, you'll know, right? Yeah. Uh, but, but they don't look like William Shatner. So what? What, no, what is the copyright? Part of the reason right is, is because they're wearing a mustard yellow shirt. Yeah. And nobody in their right mind wears a mustard yellow shirt unless they're going to a con. Except for you and your tie. Kirk has a Star Trek tie. Yes, I actually have an officially color. licensed Star Trek tie that's actually made out of the exact material that they made the command uniforms for, uh, for the original Star Trek. So what about of. acting out like that, like talking like Shatner? Is, is that enough? Like, do you infringe a character copyright in that performance, or is it something else? Yeah, and that's. I think you're getting into some very, very interesting questions when you're now talking about what exactly separates the character from the actor. Because, you know, you mentioned it as sort of the, you know, Shatner comma. Yeah, Bill Shatner in particular. You know, referring to the comma. Most actors bring a lot of their personal selves to a role. And so when does it become difficult to separate out the actor from the role? And I think this is something that even actors have had trouble with, particularly in science fiction. Um, I remember, you know, that one of the cons I went to, they had a number of people. This was back when Babylon 5 was really popular. And one of the guys there was the actor who played Lanier. And it was a discussion that I had with him that I thought was very interesting at the time about the issue of, you know, he goes to these roles as an actor that played a role, but he's seen as being a character. And the interesting thing about it is he was actually a fairly accomplished jazz musician and actually had a CD that they'd put out as the cast of Babylon 5. And they do a great song as part of that CD where they sing about how they're not the roles they played. <laughs> um, one of the lines I specifically remember is, I'm not from outer space. Um, and, you know, that, that kind of component of how do you separate the character from the actor in these kind of things, because a good actor 
actor is obviously going to put a lot of their own personality into a role. Yeah. Well, let's, let's turn to uh, the second part of Brennan's question was, if this is not allowed, then how come nobody ever gets sued over it? <laughs> and I think that boils down to... Uh, Business considerations primarily, yeah. right? So the key element to any lawsuit is damages. Why do you sue people? You either want them to stop doing something, which is really hard. Courts yep. don't like to tell people to do things or not do things. Or you're suing them for money. Well, if if you're a Paramount and you've got 500 people at a Star Trek convention all dressed up as your characters, what's your motivation to sue them? One, they can't pay a judgment because yep. they're mostly just ordinary people like us that, that don't have the means to pay a judgment. Um, and and what, what do you gain by that? Like what, what's, what's the harm to Paramount for people doing this? Arguably nothing, right? Like these are people who love what you're doing so much that they are making their own costumes and dressing yeah. up like your characters. If anything, this is something you want to encourage. And I think the thing that's where we're talking about business considerations this isn't to say that they couldn't sue you. Yeah, it's, it's just saying that they, they may not be making the decision to. Yeah. You know, and that's obviously any rights holder has the decision not to. It makes has the ability with, not to enforce their rights. With copyright, that's not a big deal. You can just not not sue, and it doesn't really prejudice you in any way. But trademark is different. Yeah, trademark is definitely different, and you can't have you know issues with you know prejudice opposed to you. You can still have prejudice opposed to you for not suing and copyright. Um, but I think that's a lot of the ideas. The people looking at this and saying, is this something we have a problem with? The other question with it is, and we've talked about fair use, is it fair use? And a lot of times I think the answer to it is is that neither side knows the answer to these questions. Yeah. And in many respects, they kind of look at it and say, we're going to essentially agree that you can do it because we don't want to know the answer. We don't want to know yeah. whether or not this is or is not fair use because if it is, it can't be enforced in certain scenarios and for the rights holder, it doesn't necessarily want that finding. If it's not, they may not be forced to you know, go after these con holders on the grounds that they have to because they, they're not doing something which yeah, and fair use, you know, the the probably the most important consideration in fair use is the commercial or financial nature of the use. And in a con situation, you know, making costumes like that is a is yeah. a labor of love. They're not making any money off of it, uh, and so I think just a jury appeal of that kind yeah. of suit is pretty low. Now, it's important to say, money changing hands is not the only thing that goes yeah. into the fair use calculation. The but problem with it is, is also money changing hands can be very far removed. So I mean, there's yeah. been actually discussions about the fact that like fam film festivals, which take place at cons, there actually was a finding at one point in time that that was a copyright infringement and not con. fair use. Yeah, because of the fact that money changed hands for the admission at the door. Um, so therefore, people were arguably paying to see the fan films that were involved in conjunction with this competition that was ongoing. There are costume contests at a lot of these things. Yeah, so the Masquerade Ball con- over at Archon, for example. You yeah. know, they're encouraging people to dress up and they're, you know, having a contest. So Yeah, so and again, I think the thing that, that we really want to get into with this is when you're talking about the, you know, why is this not going on, it's probably a business decision. It probably has very yeah. little to do with law. It's mostly a business decision. And from that, you can't get any legal advice as to whether this is a good idea. You know, for anything from any lawyer, you're always going to bump into the idea of what is the company saying? Now, a lot of these companies we mentioned in sort of, you know, previously, it, they have very specific policies on what you can and can't do. Yeah, and so if you're inside those policies, does. you're probably going to be fine. But it's a matter of knowing what that is, and that may be difficult. Well, once again, we've run a little bit long, so we're going to wrap this up. Uh, if you have a question, you can ask us on Twitter at LGGpod, or you can email us at LGGpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on our Facebook page. Just search for Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy and uh, leave us a comment there. Uh, if you like what you hear, give us a review on wherever it is you're listening to your podcasts. Uh, we appreciate those. Um, five stars uh, would be great, um, assuming we merit it. And uh, it helps other people find us. It helps with search engine, SEO, that kind of thing. And uh, next time, we're still kicking around ideas, but I think we're leaning towards video game IP. Like, can you protect video game mechanics? What can you or can you not protect? And I think this is also, it's coming a little bit out of this. You know, we talked primarily in conjunction with this with the idea of characters in movies, characters in TV. We're also going to talk a little bit about characters in video games. Yeah, these same concepts all play out there. The Sons of Fair concept in particular seems to resonate there. So uh, that's all for this time. Thank you for listening. 
The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded at Cool Fire Studios in St. Louis, Missouri. 